One of the things that we didn't get around to talking about with Lucinda, and I know that you wanted to talk about, was uh, like your decision to go into a master's program for social psych was guided a lot by what you'd be able to do with that degree and like having learned from that study. So like the things that you felt you are here to do, you would be able to do, even if like the field of social psych is not directly what you're engaging in Yeah. after having that degree. Yeah. I think, was that when we were talking about it kind of over the summer, like before yeah. I went into it and yeah, because if that was it, then I remember part of my reasoning too was that it was at the master's level. Because I don't think that this logic would apply to undergrad or to anything at the PhD level, where like you do have to, I, my understanding of the PhD level, at least is from talking to people who are doing that, is you have to be a lot more specific about what you want to be doing with it. Mm-hmm. But yeah, my thinking was like at the master's level, you're in this kind of weird crossroads. And I was like, I can get some more specific training on, on these areas that I like and some of these theories and things that are interesting me, but I can also still have that flexibility to kind of like take them in different directions because my fear was that I'd get locked into something and, you know, be learning along the way and want to change course. So my thinking was like, well, if I can narrow it down as much as possible, but then position myself so that I can go a few different routes with what I learn, then that might be the smartest thing for me right now, just knowing myself and knowing a lot of people's experience going through this where they come in thinking one thing and they come out thinking another. So, mm. yeah, that was kind of my logic. But I don't know that it's going to work. It's I don't know of anyone that's really done it. It's just that was my strategy going in. There's that sense that, like, when you're in undergrad and you're taking all these gen heads and you're like, when the fuck am I going to use chemistry ever again like yeah i'm just just, just straight up not i don't understand the math i failed it in high school like Mm -hmm. why do i have to do this again if i'm an english major and uh there's a similar thing i think with like certain jobs especially entry-level jobs where you're like this i know what i want to do long term i don't see why i have to like learn the ropes of entry-level stuff within that field because I'm never going to learn those things, right? Like, yeah. but they do they do help you a lot along the way, depending on what it is. You know, for instance, when I started uh, managing a property, I knew nothing about, like, utilities and sprinkler pipes and, like, fire code stuff and, and whatever. Yeah, And that all is useful information to me now. Mm. I don't use it now, but mm. I consider it useful. Because like if I never need that that knowledge in the future, then I have it. Yeah. I don't feel the same way about chemistry, but I, I feel the same way about like more practical knowledge that you kind of like gain along the way on a certain career path that yeah. has nothing to do with the career itself, mm. but just gives you perspective, I guess. Yeah. That was where I, I tried to really make sure I got this positioning right and why like social psych I thought was kind of a unique opportunity to do that because for me it, it sort of was that intersection of labor and education where like it's not to say yeah. that I specifically want to be a professor or something or I want to be like a straight up academic but I have always been more drawn to fields and professions and things that kind of make you engage that part of your brain a little bit like it's just mm. always been more exciting so I thought like well maybe something like this is broad enough that I could end up in a bunch of different job scenarios or grad degree scenarios or whatever, and be able to draw from this no matter where I am. Like something like chemistry, like I'm interested in it, but it's too focused if I'm wrong about that interest long-term. Right, But yeah. I was looking for like, say I made it halfway through this and I decided I want to be like a medical doctor. 
Mm-hmm. Well, the worst case here is that I have to take some bio core classes and chem core classes and go through the whole fucking med school gauntlet. But like, I've spent two years studying people on the community level. So if I was to right. work in a hospital setting, I wouldn't be applying this every single day in the way that I am learning it right now. But I might stop to think like, I wonder if there are social determinants to health that I should be thinking about as opposed to just the symptoms being presented. And you could say the same thing if I decided I want to go into like economics and I want to, mm-hmm. you know, watch stock trends or manage portfolios or do whatever. There might be that little other part of me that's thinking like, well, maybe there are other forces other than just the market that are playing out here. And so I kind of thought like that. It was like, this is going to give me, this is what I'm most interested in right now and what I'm sure that I'm most interested in right now. But it has the most like tendrils that can attach Mm. to other things that I think I might be interested in, Mm -hmm. but I'm not as sure. And given that I have limited time and limited resources and can't just go in all these directions, no matter how badly I want to, this might be the best strategic footing for me to be the most true to myself and to mm-hmm. also make a smart decision that isn't going to just lead to me whipsawing around the grad school programs until I just ultimately run out of time or money or whatever. And yeah, so far, so good, hopefully, mm-hmm. but I'm still waiting on some grades back, but <laughs> I think it's going well. And I don't know. I hope it plays out because it is something that I still feel is an interesting way to do it, at least. Yeah, it was an inter- interesting thing to contemplate when we had that conversation because it was like I've had this ongoing debate with myself for the past five, six years about like, do I want to go to grad school or not? Yeah. And I've always felt like if I got a degree, if I got a master's in creative writing, Hmm. like it would serve a lot of what I do with my life. Even if I got a master's in creative writing and poetry, Hmm. then like that would probably help me write a lot of folk songs. Yeah. Right. Like I don't want to be a poet, but I do always want to write folk songs. Right. Hmm. Um, I feel like that application of poetry is the only one that matters to me personally. Yeah. And then I was like, well, I could do it with uh, with fiction too, or I could do it with creative nonfiction. And creative nonfiction is probably the most interesting form of writing to me at this point in my life. Yeah. Um, and so I've considered that as well, thinking like, well, what will this feed into for other areas of my life? It's not much. Yeah. I'm already fine with written communication, which is evidenced by both the actual communicating that I do and the undergrad degree that I have. Mm. A master's degree in communication or any kind of writing is not going to improve that necessarily. Yeah. Like I'm I'm not going to give myself a credential that mm. matters more than what I have now. Yeah. You know, I've never come across a field of study that I could go into for a master's program that actually like matters to what I want to do with my life. Ever yeah. since that I decided that I didn't really want to teach that badly. Yeah. So, yeah, it was really interesting contemplating that based on like what I always thought I would go into for a master's program and what I've determined that I don't really want to do at this point. Yeah. So I'm like, <laughs> does it make sense to continue a formal education? I don't think it does at this point. Yeah. Maybe I'm just living out. The, maybe I'm the person who goes back to grad school when they're 50. It's getting more accessible too, though. Like that's oh yeah, yeah. Like the tides are changing a little bit. Like there's mm-hmm. on one hand, you get that conversation, like grad school is kind of the new college. Like mm-hmm. college is the new high school. Like not specifically that, but I guess in terms of like the diploma itself and what that gets you, it's like a lot of people would say that college is the new high school and grad school is the new college and blah blah blah. And I I don't think that that's necessarily true. 
but you know, people are starting to say things like that. And then on the other hand, you've got school becoming so much more accessible than it was like 10 yeah. years ago and 20 years ago and so on. And it's like the fact that there were so many online options, there were so many part-time ones, they're getting cheaper than they were, which is not to say that they're cheap, but... You've also got more fields being more accessible without a college degree. Yeah, yeah. I know more than a few software engineers Yeah, who have no college degree or the degree that they have is not for anything to do with computers and just the open availability of, of knowledge now like yeah you can take like the great courses and, and different things like that like online you can just get these lectures and these sometimes complete with course materials and they're a hundred dollars and you get like unlimited access for a year it's like if you have the energy and the time like there is so much knowledge to take in and be like a lifelong learner that you wouldn't need to get formally anymore yeah, it's so much more accessible now. And I, I feel like that uh, college is the new high school or grad school is the new college or whatever. Yeah. Like that is a narrative that started being pushed on us when I was like in my mid-20s. Yeah. And I feel like there was so much millennial pushback against that. Yeah, because we're the ones shouldering the debt. Yeah. There was like, this is the most harmful narrative that you can possibly push on the next generation. Like we are, we have to recognize that they're being pushed on us, not because it's actually true, but because colleges are businesses Yeah, and they want us to give them money and yeah. like they will operate like businesses and they will pour the most resources into the parts of their, like the links in this chain <laughs> are essentially like what fields need the most people right now. Yeah. What colleges are going to prepare people for those fields? How are those colleges going to advertise to high schoolers who need to go into college because they want to go into those fields because those fields need people? And so mm -hmm. those colleges pour all the resources into those programs specifically. So yeah. I remember predicting this, actually. <laughs> and I was like maybe 20, 21 years old, just kind of, kind of looking, at, looking at like what was happening. And I was like, something's happening between business majors and the arts. And I'm not quite sure exactly what it is, but this is how I see this playing out. And then like 10 years later, I had a conversation with one of my old professors and she was like, yeah, the English department gets absolutely no funding huh. and everything, like we straight up advertise the business major. We don't advertise other majors. Oh yeah. Like we, we like cater to the people who are like going to come here to study a certain thing because they're told that a degree in that thing just by virtue of living in the world where that degree seems more valuable than other degrees yeah. is going to be the thing that makes them a living um, and is useful in perpetuity. Mm. And while that may be true, that's no way to treat the education system. Yeah, and that's the, the danger to me of like the, the blanket value statements that are attributed to college. Like just like, again, that sort of college, the new high school thing, like on so many levels that that's, that's a wrong and kind of dumb statement. Mm -hmm. But that's one of the biggest reasons is it like funnels you into this, this kind of trap if you're not ready and like very willing to go and then know what you're going to like kind of do with that. Even if you don't know exactly what you want to do with your life, like you should at least know why you're there, you know? Yeah. Like that's why I dropped out years ago. It's like, I don't want to be here. I don't think there are any non-cowardly reasons why I'm actually here. Yeah. And this is just... A colossal waste of everything. Yeah. And I just left. And now that I'm back, I love it. And I'm I'm having so far, knock on wood, like a very pleasant experience with it. But it's because I want to be there. And I know 
kind of know what I want to do. And it's not, again, I don't know exactly what job I want to do or what work I want to do, but I know like generally where I want to sort of angle this. Mm -hmm. And that's a very difficult thing I think to do when you're like 18 and you're still trying to figure stuff out. So I, I hate that narrative that like it's this inevitability. And if you don't hit that next mark, you've somehow failed at life. Yeah. And and even that notion that it is the new high school or that grad school is the new college is also just flawed on a factual mm -hmm. level because it's mm -hmm. you're just in the process of focusing everything as you go. Like your right. high school is like complete gen eds. You have to be there. And then college is a little more selective and grad school is by nature like a bunch more selective. And then mm -hmm. not just on the admissions end, but on the interests. And, and it's so insane to me to apply that logic to something like that. Cause like, I didn't realize it until the grad school aside now. And I'm like, Jesus Christ, like you really, it's hard to, to deviate from the program too far, mm. which isn't a problem. Cause in theory, everyone in the program, it's like, they're here for that reason. They want to do it. And I am too. But I was like, man, it was so much different in undergrad where you can just take, I was taking like anatomy and physiology. I was taking business law. I was taking philosophy. I was taking public speaking, like just whatever the hell, basically, as long as I took my core classes. Right. And that was great, but it's dangerous to me to apply that that logic of, like, you need to keep kind of the Peter Principle thing, you know? Like, you have to keep ascending when you're also ascending into, like, a bottleneck if you don't know that you're doing that. Yeah. It's yeah. an interesting structure that education and labor have now that they've commingled in the way they have. I'll tell you what was an interesting perspective that is occurring to me now that I don't think many people get especially if they go to like an art school. So the college I went to was primarily a teacher college, a teaching college, um, which all the state colleges were um, at one point. Mm. Like that's why they were founded. So a decent amount of the people who go to a state college for the arts are planning to teach the arts. Yeah. When I decided that I didn't want to be a teacher anymore, and even before that, because I think I, I always knew that it wasn't only what I wanted to do. Or what I wanted to only do. And so me as like an undergrad creative writer in a school where that is not an art school. Mm. And that if you are someone who studies creative writing, it's probably so that you can teach creative writing. Yeah. And there weren't a ton of fields or a ton of major programs in that school that weren't paired with teaching in some way. But being an artist in a school that does not have arts funding, or at least not much of it, and that is not an art school, is not preparing you to, to, to create art, but rather to teach it, it kind of gives you this under, underdog perspective of yeah. like, I'm doing the thing here that they're not trying to prepare me for. Yeah. The, the infrastructure to prepare me for what I want to do is there, but it's not what they want to use that infrastructure for necessarily, or yeah. not why it's primarily there. And so you do kind of get this underdog mentality yeah. about like, well, I'm going to use this for, for my own purposes. I'm going to like avail myself of these resources to whatever degree I can, just like just suck it dry yeah. and somehow use that to be successful. There was a really cool like, and again, I'm only realizing it now, but I had to develop a lot of tenacity that I don't mm. think I retained much of, but <laughs> there was a time when like that tenacity was really, really important. Like academic tenacity or like the institutional? No, the opposite of academic tenacity. 
You mean like kind of the bureaucratic side? like No, no, like the artistic side, the artistic oh, okay. tenacity. Like I have to keep this up so that I can prove that it's worth doing when it's not what they want me to be doing. Yeah, it almost flips that like hero's journey switch a little bit, like yeah. kind of the human condition thing, like, oh, yeah, okay, like now I'm fighting upstream. Yes. Which yeah, is the best exactly. education you can get as an artist in an ironic kind of way. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I know. I've I've sadly lost a lot of the tenacity now, but like in a very specific way, which actually I'll get into in a second. But like, yeah, I, I struggled a lot with this, with the clash between art and academia, um, especially for like, there was one specific semester where it just broke me the fuck down. Yeah. Because especially after I, I decided I didn't want to teach, I had something to prove. Yeah. So suddenly it was like, okay, now I have to be a creative writer and I have to be the best creative writer yeah. or else none of this was worth it. This is what's been breaking me down lately. Mm. About a year ago when we were talking about the, the, the stuck in the rut stuff, right? I was pointing to a lack of institutional support as my primary source of, of being in that rut. Yeah. Meaning that I don't always have the energy to act as an independent contractor, like a, a proprietor of my own mission. Yeah. And occasionally I want to be like under the wing of, of some person, some organization, just something that can pick up the fucking slack. Yeah. You know, yeah. like occasionally I, I need that. I often am because of that tenacity that I developed back then. I often am for the most part able to act as an independent person and, and not need a ton of guidance, not need a ton of support, but it's nice that when it's there. Yeah. And so last year, that was coming across to me as I'm exhausted from trying to make my creativity into a career. And at this point, can't someone have just noticed me? Yeah. That's kind of how it felt then. And now it feels a little bit different, but the core is still the same. And I've realized this in the past few months is that every fucking thing I start, mm. I become an independent contractor. <laughs> Like not literally, yeah. but everything that I go into where I expect some institutional support or I expect that there's some organization that has my back, yeah, it turns into me just having to figure it the fuck out because like whatever I've gotten myself involved in is just like topsy-turvy enough that it's not structured for my specific role or position to be mm -hmm. supported in the right way. Yeah. So this happens in like a lot of jobs that I've ended up in and like organizationally, I think this has always been a struggle for me because you know how much I hate the idea of like not fitting into community. Yeah. And then when I finally do feel that way, when I finally like develop that trust and that comfortability and I'm like, okay, I'll get involved and I'll show my true colors and I'll be like vulnerable enough to authentically show up in this thing. Right. Yeah. And then it inevitably becomes, but now you're on your own. Yeah. You are running your own department and you are the sole employee of that department. Yeah. It just, it happens all the fucking time. Yeah. And so the thought occurred to me, I know that I've endured so much of this very lonely, <laughs> very exhausting feeling. <laughs> yeah. That I either have to make being a loner my biggest strength, which so far has failed me. Right. <laughs> or I have to learn how to organize community around career so that this doesn't happen again. So basically like I still have to be the independent person doing that organizing. Yeah. But only in so far as 
like I have to stop succumbing to being that that lonely person. Yeah. And start learning how to organize people around a cause or organize people around a department or organize people around a project or some kind of schedule that that I'm on that I need to keep to so that I create that support structure. Yeah. Around me and I think like as time has gone on I've I've learned to do that better. But way too often I just go right to the, being the loaner, being the independent contractor, just doing it on my own because no one else is going to help me. So I'm just like, fuck it, I'll do it. Yeah. And that is partly because one of my strengths is that if there is a vacuum, I will fill it. (laughs) So that has become a strength. Yeah. But that's not always applicable to like something that will solve the problem. Yeah. Like the problem isn't always let's use my brand of creativity to fill the gap that's there. Right. Most of the time, the pro- the problem is I take on roles that are new, experimental, or poorly planned to begin with. <laughs> and I'm given the agency to improve upon what that role means to an institution or an organization. And yeah. then I'm like, okay, well, I'll just do this my fucking self because you didn't do it right the first time. Yeah. And I think now I have to develop the superpower of learning how to organize a community or a social structure around what I'm trying to accomplish and what I'm trying to improve upon in the roles that I'm playing. Yeah. Cause there's an irony, at least to the extent that I have like either witnessed or talked with you about like some of these situations, there is an irony to the way that you specifically would become a loner. Cause it's, you become mm-hmm. a loner because you're incredibly effective at whatever yeah. you're doing. You like, you're just not the squeaky wheel. You know? So no one's, <laughs> it's not like you're a loner. Cause everyone's like, I don't care about this activity anymore. Or like this event has been happening so far off of everybody's radar and it just continues to. It's like like anytime I've seen you kind of take up the reins of something or start doing a job, it visibly improves whatever yeah. it is. And then and people do become interested in it if they weren't already, and the people who were interested in it stay interested in it. And it's like it by any possible metric it succeeds. But it's just like you whack your head on that ceiling like right away. Mm -hmm. And then the people who are above that ceiling, if there are any, are just content that that wheel's not squeaking anymore, that like that ineffective person who was there before is no longer there and that this new person seems to be kicking ass. And it's like, it seems like that's where the line is drawn a lot of times. It's like, fuck it, it's not an issue anymore. Let's just, so they're, they're not looking for like, how can we expand this in a way? Yeah, but then that gives the powers that be a misunderstanding about the position that I'm filling, which is that it can be done by one person and should be done by one person. Yeah. So that's, I mean, maybe maybe I just need to become more effective at asking for help. But <laughs> that seems less of a, that seems like less of a permanent solution than... You know, there's learn how to there's learn to ask for help, and there's learn how to organize. And I think yeah, that like yeah. what I'm learning to do as time goes on is is learning how to organize the human resources pool of people that is a, a, around and available to to organize is yeah. not deep. But yeah, I think that's what I need to learn to learn how to do. It comes with time, you know. Like one of my favorite things is getting people in the same room that I never thought would be in the same room together. Yeah. So I've been doing this songwriter series all year. And a few months ago, I had a bunch of these songwriters that I had booked on completely different nights, right? All come up and show up in one place because I was just like, hey, 
we're doing like a bigger, bigger event. Anyone who wants to come and play, come and play. Yeah. And I got to watch these people get introduced to each other and network with each other that I didn't know if they would ever be in the same room together, but like by golly, they should be. Yeah. You know? And so Arthur came up to me and was like, where do you find these amazing songwriters? Like you always just have a deep well of songwriters to draw from. And I'm like, yeah, because I'm very good at curating talent. Yeah. I'm not as good at curating a different kind of, of labor pool. Mm. I'm good at recognizing talent and putting that talent on a, on a stage. I'm very good at doing that. Yeah. I'm not good at asking for help and I'm not good at like asking people to do real labor <laughs> to, yeah. to help me get shit done. So Yeah. Well, that makes sense too though cuz like especially in the entertainment realm, like those are two distinct jobs. Like those are two separate roles. Like in this case, like you're a really good talent buyer or you're a really good agent, but you're not as good of a general manager. Nope. Cuz those are two very different people. Like there's one guy who's walking around screaming at someone for not cleaning the urinals and and like trying to make sure that like there's parking and all, you know, that kind of stuff. And then the other person is like looking at the slightly different or slightly bigger picture and saying like, how do we actually do something here that is going to make all those other jobs important? Cause a mm-hmm. hundred people are about to show up, you know? So like those two things fit together in a really good symbiotic way. But I think it's, it's like a lot of times when we've talked about like DIY, like music or recording and stuff where people conflate like the engineer and the producer or, right the artist and the manager and all those kinds of things. And it's like in a perfect world, these are very separate things and should be like each of these people should be able to go full force. Mm -hmm. But if one person is doing all of these things, then they are sacrificing something and you just have to hope that it's nothing critical. Right. If you're the person standing there holding the check or whatever, because like it's unfair, like in a philosophical way to ask one person to do all of those Unless mm-hmm. it's a true like mom and pop, like it's their shop, they're running this place, but yeah, and they're choosing to do that. But I, yeah, I get where you're coming from. That it's got to be kind of a drag on the energy level. To <laughs> it is, but I will say that the energy level rises considerably when I am like on show night. Yeah, I find myself bouncing around and being very spry and having a degree of limberness that, frankly, I thought I had lost in my old age. <laughs> <laughs> um, and I'm like, you know, I'm just jumping onto and off of stages willy nilly. Like, oh, I might re-injure my knee right now. <laughs> try not to do that. But also I just, I have the energy to do it. I feel agile when in that role in ways that I do not feel agile at any other time. Yeah. In any other setting. So since I've started working concerts again, mm. that is what I find gives me energy. I also... In the role that I'm in now, there are other people doing the other things. Yeah. So there there are people to that I can delegate to a little bit. They also, they are in their own dedicated roles. They're not just PAs that I can send off and do whatever the fuck I want them to do. Yeah. Um, so typically it's me doing <laughs> some of the other stuff as well. Yeah. Um, but, you know, I have people working the door. I have people, yeah. Mm-hmm. So that's, has, that's felt really nice as well. It's like I can have a fairly singular focus where I need to. And that's something that has been absolutely missing from from other jobs in the past. But also having to wear a lot of different hats at jobs in the past, I hated it at the time, but it did prepare me yeah. to have the like an, an intense amount of tunnel vision yeah. about just running sound and just managing the talent. Yeah. Right? So if I don't have to do any of the other things that are auxiliary to that, 
That could also translate if, like, imagine your current gig, if somebody just handed you the keys and said, like, this is your show now and you have access to whatever employee pool, like what human resources pool you need to staff jobs. You just have to screen them and everything. Like, I think being kind of a jack of all trades in that respect would actually translate to efficiency in that case, because you wouldn't probably want to spend all of your energy and your time doing each one of these jobs individually, but you would also know what it takes to do all of those jobs. So you wouldn't be stumbling around hiring like the really persuasive stoner sound guy. Yeah. Because like you wouldn't have to go through those failures. You would just be like, all right, I know what this should kind of look like. And yeah. you'd be able to interview people really quickly or like give really constructive feedback and like make sure that like, yeah, you might have to intervene periodically in different aspects of running your own show, but mm. you don't have to linger, you know? Like you don't have to be a control freak because you can delegate in a meaningful way. And this is what I think like we didn't get a chance to talk about this either. But when Lucinda was talking about the role of the company man kind of not being a thing anymore, we still use the rhetoric of it, but it's not really a thing anymore. Yeah. We don't really have that like you should go above and be like we do have this. It's it's I am so opposed to this. Right. Like you should go above and beyond in order to prove yourself so that you'll get promoted. Yeah. And there's a sense that like that still exists, especially the rhetoric, the rhetoric around it still exists. I think less companies actually expect that these days. I'm probably wrong about that, actually. It does seem like it's becoming a little bit more gauche, though, to be leading with that, like to be saying yeah. like, this is what we demand. It's like it might be implied. Right. And it might factor into a decision, but it's not what they're necessarily printing out on the memo. But there's all this criticism of quiet quitting and stuff like that. And it's like, oh, you're not willing to do a little bit more than what you signed on for? Like, how do you expect to get recognized? And like your work ethic yeah. isn't going to be recognized. And what bothers me about that is that work ethic is not a, a monolithic concept. Yeah. Work ethic, to me, means that you are aware of what allows you to show up doing what you are good at. Yeah. Being aware of that and knowing how you can do it well. And also, I think that there's a, you're right that I wouldn't be a good general manager, but there's a part of me that is at least aware that like, I, if I were one, mm. I would be good at one thing, which is knowing how to delegate and knowing how to recognize skills in people and what, uh, recognizing what they appreciate about the work that they do enough yeah. so that I could assign them the right kind of work for their specific work ethic. Yeah. Work ethic is so specific to the individual doing the work. Well, for that reason, I actually think, I think you would be a good one. It's just, I think you'd be so miserable that you'd just... I'd get bored. Yeah, yeah you'd get the hell out of there. But yeah, but yeah, there's like an emotional intelligence to that that right. is absent kind of from the general philosophies that rule the right. workplace, it seems like. And the main reason that I, that I begrudge that viewpoint is that <laughs> if you are promoted by mm -hmm. virtue of going above and beyond and doing a bunch of things that you should not have been expected to do in the first place, and yeah. you're promoted as a manager who had, who is supposed to be able to delegate things to other people, you're then yeah. going to delegate them wrong because that was not modeled for you correctly. Yeah. So that's how you end up with incredibly ineffective companies. Yeah, it's the Peter Principle thing again. I mean, it's like yeah. there's that idea that like we're so wired, especially in this part of the world, like we are hardwired to equate rising in a company hierarchy with like worth financial and self and it's kind of it makes so much intuitive sense just because we're raised that way but it's like 
when you really think about it, it's kind of nuts. Like the way that I heard it explained to me when I first learned about that term was using engineers as an example. And it's like, I think that's a really clear way to see it because you think about the type of person who becomes like a really kick-ass software engineer or something. Mm -hmm. And like the types of personality traits and interests and things that might funnel into like the stereotypical software engineer's successful life. And like following that equation, you're, you're supposed to want to rise and rise and rise and lead, you know, eventually become a manager, eventually become an upper manager or whatever. And like you keep getting salary bumps and, you know, everything's going as planned. But what you end up with is like somebody who's actually really good at doing the machine level engineering now in charge of running meetings and interfacing with other groups of engineers and like all of this kind of people person stuff. Mm. And like, it's very likely that that skill set is not something that this person possesses right. or is not interested in. And there's yeah. nothing wrong with that. And it's just, it's unfair. And like, there've been a lot of things too with like in politics, you know, where somebody will get promoted up and up and up and up. And they always say like, that's the, like, that's the point of the Peter principle, like promoted to the point of failure. Right. Or to like the lowest point of failure or something like that. And I've heard in other companies, I think uh, other countries, I think like Japan might do this. They still have promotions, but it's like promotions of pay not of title. Mm. So you're able to still kind of climb, but you're not changing jobs every time you climb. That's interesting. So yeah, I just, I always like kind of thinking about that because it's like, there shouldn't be any cognitive dissonance around having work ethic as, as you've described it mm -hmm. and just showing up and being like, you know what? I'm happy here. I'm making good money here. I'm fulfilled. I'm good at this and I'm going to bring my damnedest self to this. Yeah. You shouldn't have to be like eyeing the corner office or trying to reckon with the fact that you're not. Mm -hmm. I have a friend that works in like sort of video, like journalistic video production. Yeah. And they were telling me recently that like they were short on script writers. So someone was taken from the video editing pool and like <laughs> given the opportunity to like write this, write a script for this video that we're doing. Mm -hmm. And so they did, but they're not used to journalistic writing. Yeah, And so they were like, they had some like creative back writing background. And so they just wrote it wrong and like <laughs> conveyed misinformation and like, <laughs> they, like had to, they had to like put a disclaimer on it on everything. Like they added a bunch of man hours trying to correct this mistake because they brought somebody in to pick up some slack who was not qualified to pick up that slack. Yeah. Right. And like, so there's obviously a difference between not being qualified and not having the aptitude for a certain thing. Like, yeah. right. Yeah. Maybe they don't have the credential to be, to be there, but they might have the skill to be there. Mm -hmm. But this were, this person was neither one. <laughs> so mm -hmm. like, um, and so that I think is what I'm putting out. It's like, I think I would be fairly able to point out the aptitudinal strengths mm -hmm. of, of people that I was managing and yeah. um, and I think that I have been in the past and in more more casual, unofficial ways. Yeah. But I think that's a big thing that companies face now with with their labor pool. Yeah. And why I think that like the idea of quiet quitting has kind of taken the at least the buzzword world by storm mm. as much as it has recently is because like it's a shock to people that you wouldn't want to go above and beyond. Yeah. 
but the reasons that people are often asked to go above and beyond is because work is not appropriately delegated because there is this monolithic view of what work ethic means. And if you work for a company, you're just willing to work for the company mm. and not within a very specific role or for very specific hours or whatever. And yeah. Lucinda saying that like the qualities of an engaged employee are that they will go above and beyond. I think that speaks to how work is being delegated and how aptitude is being recognized in the workplace, mm. much more so than if there are the right vending machines there, you know, yeah. like, <laughs> I don't know, there's just so much mismanagement of human resources in that sense. I wonder if this is another thing like the, like the college thing too, where this is something that's changing along generation lines. Oh, I, th right I now. think it definitely is. Yeah. Because even, I mean, you could see like the emphasis that millennials to a certain extent and definitely like Gen Zs and, and younger um, are putting on like work-life balance, but in the actual like truest meaning of that phrase, not just like, you know, you have time to come home and get yelled at by your family and then go back to work. <laughs> mm -hmm. It's like actually like kind of choosing a job that allows you to have a life, like allows you to sort of bend your career around your your interests in some ways and like right that's obviously not something that everybody can do at least not yet but like the in its most effective form like the gig economy stuff like that that whole kind of thing is so seems so new at least to me that it feels like it might be starting to change things along some of those lines that like you could be passionate enough that you are willing to go above and beyond but above and beyond doesn't necessarily translate directly to just pumping more change into the company machine. Right. And then hoping that somebody gives you a gift at some point. So that's the toxic one to me. It's like, I don't think that there's anything inherently wrong personally with that kind of capitalistic, like ladder climbing, you know, just thinking about moves and stuff mm -hmm. mindset. But I don't think you should have to have it because I enjoy that to a certain extent. But mm. if I just had to go to a cubicle every day and just sit down and like, plug away and hope that someday somebody recognize. Be, oh my god i'd fucking lose it yeah i, I had a uh thing to add and i lost that <laughs> god damn it oh, god i damn can it. give you cub cubicles yeah <laughs> that was it yeah so uh no i heard this quote the other day that's been just rattling around my head since and i think it's it's the most succinct way i've ever heard to sum up this entire like the version of that same debate that I've always had throughout my adult life as well, which is, um, it's a Maslow quote mm. that I'm probably paraphrasing, but it's something very similar to this. But he just said, um, all that a man can be, he must be. Interesting. Which if it's like, it sounds like a nice little Hallmark quote, but when you think about it in the Maslow context, yeah, like think about it in like a self-actualization as part of like human development and survival kind of context yeah like that must it, it takes on a lot more meaning mm. and that was what kind of when i first heard it i was like oh, okay like that's cool but then when i really started to think about like what he must be means when it's maslow saying it it was like oh no that i think that actually very much hits the nail on the head for me for that that feeling that kind of restless feeling and that dissonance that happens when i feel like i'm leaving some shit on the table that i shouldn't be whether it's in a professional context or just my life around that. I'm also, I'm just looking up this quote too to make sure that I actually okay. 
while I'm on the internet now. <laughs> he, what a man can be, he must be. It's close. Okay. You said yeah. all that a man can be, yeah. Yeah. You kind of mixed it with the army a little bit there. <laughs> what do they say? Be all that you can be. Oh. <laughs> I guess that's some little shit's working. <laughs> sure is. <laughs> I think that ties in with the last point that I wanted to make about that conversation, which is that mm. when I was re-listening... I heard myself say something that I immediately disagreed with. <laughs> I was telling the story of when I decided not to be a teacher, and it's when I was forced to juxtapose teaching with creating. And the language that I used was I chose to do the generative thing. And I did make sure to say, like, a, it's not that teaching is not a generative profession to be in. But I was using generative synonymously with creative. Mm. And that's where I disagreed with that when I was listening back because I would actually say and, and and largely that conversation was about people being able to show up as their authentic selves and 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 pull their work from a deep place of creativity and and self-worth and belonging in yeah. the workplace or in in the work that they do, right? Yeah. Now I'm listening to that listening to myself say that and thinking instead that how we show up and how we are fulfilled by our work is that our work allows us to be generative in so many different ways. Mm. And knowing the way that it best fulfills you and knowing like how you specifically are good at being generative, if we really yeah. broaden the definition of that word, word right? Because sometimes it means creative. Mm. But like, I think there are many different ways to be creative and many different ways to be, be generative. And I believe that like knowing what you excel at, not just what you've been trained in, more more aptitude than training. Yeah. But knowing both of those things and also just like what do you deeply care about? Not just what you're good at, not just like what you have learned the most about, but what do you deeply care about? What changes do you most want to see made in the world? If what you do for a living, if what if the labor that you spend most of your life doing generates those changes in some way or generates new opportunities for you to interact with the world. Mm. in ways that were not there before, right? Mm. Like, I think the way that we are most fulfilled in work is when our work allows us to be generative in the ways that we are specifically attuned to be. Yeah. And so I just wanted to kind of make that correction. I think even even like someone who really enjoys being a receptionist, right? Like they are generating, if they enjoy it and they're good at it, they are generating like a positive social energy and interactivity, yeah. Into their workspace every day, right? Like, yeah. it's not creative in the way that we think of the word creativity, but it's generative. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. I think, like, the generativity, is that a... Yeah, sure. All right. <laughs> I think the generativity of... That doesn't feel like a word when I say it fast. Does generativeness I'm going to go with generativeness. Better? Okay. I don't know. Maybe I'll, <laughs> I'll think of just a different way to avoid that altogether. Why would it be creativity, but generativeness? I don't know. I know that English is a fucked up language, but like... They both just feel <laughs> wrong to say out loud. They both felt right in my head. But I think what makes a job generative, there we go, is the, rela <laughs> is the relationship between the person working the job and the job or the role, you know? Like, because mm -hmm. that's where I think it gets murky sometimes. And especially like when you hear people... Like I heard someone arguing about this the other day, like the value of any sort of stereotypical minimum wage, like retail job or anything like that, where mm -hmm. like 
somebody who's all about climbing and ascending or whatever would look at it and say, oh, what, like, basically, what did you do wrong? You're, you're still doing this. And other people would say, no, it's a good paying, stable job. And then you get people in the other camp who are like, I'm just good at this. I'm happy doing this. I love the people that I see. And it's like, to me, the way to reconcile all of this is just, is this kind of where you are right now? Like, is this a good thing for you right now? And not necessarily where you want to always be, mm. but like, is it helping you achieve something? Or is it, are you happy because you're, you're seeing good people, you're bringing joy to people's day. Yeah. And to me, that's where the job becomes generative is like, if you're working, I, I think I used like a farm stand example or something in, in that episode or in something I did at some point, but you know, you just kind of show up and you sell produce every day and you're just like the local dude who does that. Mm. There's mm -hmm. no ladder. Like you're not going to eventually be running your own like produce conglomerate and all this kind of shit, but you're making a lot of people really happy and you're a stop yeah. on their way home from work or you're the person they get advice from occasionally or like, who knows? Like you're woven into the fabric of people's lives at that point. Mm -hmm. And you could get the same thing from being a clerk at CVS or a bagger at the grocery store. Like it doesn't need to be this like homespun Americana vision of that type of job. Like if you're like, okay, this is, this is working for me. This is good. Mm -hmm. Then like that should be enough. That should be it. And that is generative at that point. Like I remember so many people like that who are just like, oh fuck yeah. Like that waiter's there or like that, that bagger's there. Like they just become a fixture in your life. It becomes a relationship and kind of makes the community what it is. And I think it's the same thing for somebody that's like, you know, like the Mark Cubans of the world who are like ladder climbers to a T, but they climbed from that bottom rung and they worked their way up because they knew like, okay, I don't want to be here forever, but I, I can see how I can turn point A into point B into point C. So like, mm -hmm. let me not be afraid of stepping on point A because like people are going to say, oh, what the hell? So I think both of those are completely valid ways to live and valid ways to work, but they... Like what would make them generative depends on who you are and why you're mm -hmm. there. I think also knowing what it helps you to achieve happens by accident so often. So it's it's difficult to navigate like what a certain kind of labor is availing you of. Yeah. For later on, like you made this very deliberate decision about grad school and how yeah. taking what you learn about social psychology with you, whatever you end up doing with that degree. Yeah. Like that's a very deliberate decision to make and a very wise way to make it. I also mentioned earlier that I was working, th I was like suffering through a job at one point that gave me a lot of really valuable skills. Mm -hmm. it, al it also taught me the value of delegation. So like that's why I was suffering is because there was no de delegation. It was just everything kind of funneled through me and that was it. And I had no, no support. Yeah. So, but it taught me the value of delegation. It also gave me very like good hands-on skills to have sometimes I could approach that job very monastically. And this is another amendment to our episode with Lucinda. And I was talking about monastic labor. Yeah. This is kind of more of what I, what I, what I meant when I was thinking about going back to the music school after the, after they reopened, I was talking to my therapist and saying like, I don't think I can do it. I don't think I am capable of doing it now. Like I've grown too much. I don't yeah. know that I can do this. I didn't use this language at the, at the time. She said, it's it's going to be helpful for you to visualize yourself in that role. Like really take a moment to kind of daydream about what it would look like for you to be back there. Yeah. And I started asking myself, can I envision chop wood, carry water mm. at this place? 
again. Yeah. There were times when that job was chop wood, carry water. Yeah. And I was fine with it. And there were times when I wasn't fine with it. And I think when I talk about doing work monastically, like it can mean one of two things. It can mean like, A, I interviewed this funeral director one time who's like, that was what he did in the town. Mm. He was very involved in the community. He knew a lot of people in the community, was always giving. Mm. It struck me how dedicated he was to filling the role of a funeral director. It was in his family, too. So, like, it wasn't something that he just, like, decided on his own. It was a vocation that he that he fell into by mm. virtue of it being a family business. But he really got it. He really mm. got the importance of being there for somebody while they're grieving. Yeah. He almost spoke about it like his job was to give as much as he could to the community so that they would know that they could trust him with their grief. Yeah. And his whole life was that. He struck me as somebody who had a very monastic approach to that kind of work. Yeah. And that's not a very laborious, as in chop wood, carry water, job. But that's one way that I think of monastic work. The other way that I think yeah. of monastic work is chop wood, carry water. Yeah. And so those are the two ways that I think of that, that word relating to labor. It's like one, oh. is, is, it, is your whole being involved in that line of work? Is your whole being, is your whole soul mm. just deeply engaged with what you do? Yeah. Not to the point that it's burning you out all the time, but to the point yeah. where you know that this is your identity. You are the funeral director that needs to have valuable, trusting relationships with the people who are going to come to you with their grief eventually. Yeah. Because that's a very necessary role for somebody to, to be able to fill in a small town, right? Yeah. So anyway, the point is, I asked myself before making this decision to not go back to what I was doing before. And again, I didn't use this language at the time, but it's kind of wasn't what I was visualizing. It was like, am I able to be a monk about this again? And no, yeah. I wasn't able to. Yeah. But I think that there is a certain energy that I avail myself of that allows me to do some of the elements of that job monastically. Yeah. Just not all of them. I lost my place of what I was doing there, but like... Just like that was an accidental way of of stumbling upon what I was achieving. And it can be hard sometimes to know what you're achieving in doing a certain kind of work. Yeah. But I think at a certain point when you've done, an, and I've done a lot of things, okay? So like <laughs> at a certain point, you learn how to take an audit of what you would be able to do more of. And I think that's a very important question to ask is, mm -hmm. well, if I decided to do more of this kind of work, would it be chop wood, carry water, or would it be I'm suffering through it and not knowing what I'm achieving with it? That's like, I know we've talked about this on one episode or another too, but like, I think that like internal audit, like the, the daydreaming that you mentioned, or just any level of that where you just look inward for a second and just think like, what the hell am I doing here mm -hmm. right now? I think that's something that like, as much as I, I hate absolutes, and generalizing to this extent, like, I think everyone can do their version of that. Yeah. And should be on some level obligated to do that. Like, you don't have to claim to know what to do with the information you get, or you might not have to, like, you might not be in a position to do something with the information you get from that audit. Mm -hmm. Or you might just not know how in the hell to process it. But, like, I think that's something everybody ought to do on a semi-regular basis, just kind of check in and like poke around for a second and be like, what is going on here? Or like, could I handle any more of this? Or can I handle this now? 
because it's like those are the things that keep it from like scabbing over you know they keep a decision from becoming this monstrous caricature of itself over yeah. the course of a lifetime which is why i think we need to foster an exploratory period in young adults you know, yeah. like we all, you, you know, you go to, at least in public schools, there's always those, those field trips where you go to the Vogue school and see like, oh, what do people do here? And you go to like, you know, there are like exploratory workshops that you do with like for like a day, a year. <laughs> to see yeah. Like, oh, what are the other options? Okay. It's at, worst, at least worth seeing what those are. Yeah. I actually think during high school, there needs to be a lot of emphasis on, on really like from like birth until the end of high school there needs to be a lot of emphasis on like on socialization mm. during the 20s there should be a lot of vocational experimentation i think oh yeah because i know i benefited from it again i didn't know that i was benefiting from it yeah almost none of the english majors that i went to school with are doing anything having to do with english now they're yeah. not teaching they're not writing one of my best friends from college just told me that he's going to school to be a vet now I'm like, all right, great. Happy <laughs> <Yeah>. for you. <laughs> it's a great field to go into. Yeah. But like, you know, and then I, of course I knew a few teachers um, who are using that degree. So like, not a wash, but so many people go to college. And again, it's, it's generation specific because we were told we had to. Yeah. Right. So so many people go just to have that fail safe, but I've benefited so much from having a lot of different kinds of jobs and really like feeling out what I was good at. Yeah. If you told me when I was 18 years old that a lot of the fulfillment in my life was going to come from doing live sound. Yeah. I would be like, well, when, when do I get to become a famous author? Right? Like, <laughs> yeah, because I had never experienced that before. And so I had this tunnel vision about what I thought my career should be and how I thought I should be generative because I had yeah. never tried out other ways of being generative. Yeah, I think that's an opportunity that we don't necessarily give young adults. Yeah, you're told what makes money. You're told what is most stable. You're told like what are the most sought after jobs. What takes the longest? What's the most labor intensive to get there? It would just be really worth having a more exploratory period and programs that fostered that. Yeah, rather than like a four year, let's send you right through the pipeline into a career. Yeah, you know, I think we need like a like a five-year, maybe eight-year, just exploratory period. But it's like, do these jobs and see, like, every year, see what you liked. Yeah. And then based on that, we'll concentrate it for the next year. Based on that, we'll concentrate it for the next year. And at the end of these, like, five years, whatever, you'll have an idea of, like, what you really want to do. But you'll have been, like, making money the entire time, like, making a living the entire time and not just, like, having to work four hours a week because the rest of your time is spent studying. Like, yeah, yeah. you know, there should be more options like that. And then fucking in your thirties, figure it out. Cause that's what yeah. everyone's doing now. <laughs> and I mostly know people now who are not in like, just, just stuck in the rat race because something about like for all of the horrible inequities that our generation has had to endure, there have been a lot of positive changes in the workplace and a lot of those expectations of the company man are just not there anymore for some fields. And for, for like, I think that most people who at least hold companies to those high standards and are privileged and qualified enough to be able to because they can find work elsewhere. Yeah. That's an important thing to mention. Mm. Those standards are changing in a way that allows us to hold 
the workplace accountable for the kind of fulfillment and satisfaction and authenticity that we get out of the experience. Yeah, I agree. It's like after a while, I mean, even the idea of what you do or having a job seems like it has to get updated too, mm -hmm. you know? Like when you really think about like, what's the purpose of having a workforce? You know, we're not all just like making license plates or <laughs> fucking commissary. It's like, yeah. in theory, there are jobs because there are tasks. Yeah. You know, so like we all take a job because it's like we're all kind of like contributing mm -hmm. and creating this thing called society and keeping it alive in real time and all that. I mean, obviously that isn't how it always plays out, but I think that's something that like definitely we're, we're due for now, just given the scale of like technological change and social change and population growth and like all millions of different variables that have emerged or been altered in some way. That It's like we really, we're, yeah, we're due for a reappraisal of what the hell we're all doing. Because the idea of a company man is like, I think it's changing or waning for a really good reason. Like not even just the ethical or the psychological reasons, but like it's inefficient in a lot of cases. Yeah. So there are so many different ways of looking at things like that. And I, I do like that the current generations like millennials and, and further back are, are really kind of taking an honest look at this stuff, but also are actively changing some of it that like, mm -hmm. That's really cool to me, and I'm interested to see how that changes in yeah, the future. I mean, for, first of all, you've got that trope of like someone getting passed over for a promotion. So why wouldn't you just go get that promotion somewhere else? Yeah. Like, first of all, there's that. And then second of all, like, enough exists from that era of the zeitgeist. Like, I would think of the dad from the Wonder Years. Mm. The stereotype of the, of, the, of the overworked father coming home, pouring himself a glass of scotch... Yeah, and just w <laughs> watching Vietnam on the news into the night. <laughs> like, <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> uh, what a miserable existence, you know. Like, yeah, I don't know. That's the image that always comes to mind. Oh, same. Yeah, yeah. I always think of it as a cross between that and the guy from Christmas Story, who was just a goofier version of that. <laughs> yeah, exactly. <Yeah. laughs> <laughs> He's got a death grip on hope. Like, come on. <laughs> yeah. He needs that lamp so bad. Yeah, I know. That's always Pete just showed me that clip again the other night. And I was like, God, there's a sadness to this. Like, yeah. We were talking about how much that movie changes as you get older. Like how when you're a kid, like, oh, it's funny. He licked the pole. Oh, it's funny. Yeah. The lamp broke. But when you get older, you realize like the depth, the emotional <laughs> depth of that movie. It's like, it is hilarious and it gets funnier yeah. as time goes on. But it's also like, oof. But I was thinking back to like, there was a conversation I had with someone recently about um, like medical school and stuff and was thinking like, God, for so many professions. And I, in this context, I was talking about psychology because I think it's weird to me that it isn't structured similarly to this. But the idea of framing certain types of college or certain types of grad school and education in general, the way that med schools are, it, that just seems so appealing to me. Mm. Like the way where like you, you spend a couple of years learning like your core concepts, like learning organic chemistry and anatomy and, you know, all the different things that you need to know just on a general level. But then there's a couple of years of just mandatory rotations between different fields. Like this might be the only time you ever spend in an operating room in your rest of your career, but you're going to do general surgery or you might never go back to psychiatry, but like... You're going to do that for a couple of weeks. Mm -hmm. And I was saying in this conversation, like, you have no idea how badly I want that to exist for psychology. 
Because mm. like every two fucking weeks I read about a new discipline. Yeah. And I'm like, holy shit, you can just do that? You can just, that can be your job? And all of them take like six years of training. Wow. And completely discrete paths through education and careers, whatever. And I'm like, that's just within this one discipline, within this one type of science. If you apply that to so many other fields, like you could totally apply that to like finance and business and shit like that. Or you could apply that absolutely to like trades. And I think vocational schools do this a little bit, right? Like they kind of do a version of this. I think a combination of something like that and like a mandatory gap year when you come out of high school would be a really valuable thing for a lot of people in, in picking a path that yeah. really works for them. Because there's so many things yeah. that you just, it's really fucking hard to try. It's really hard to try and fail and experiment. Mm-hmm especially as you get older, because the consequences are legit. Yeah. The resources are intense, and there's not the time, usually. Mm. Like the mortician guy you mentioned. Like, I don't know that many people that would, like, sit down and say, you know what, I figured it out. This is what I want to do. (laughs) Or, like, chaplains and stuff. You find people in these roles who it's like, I don't know how the hell they found this, but this is where they ought to be. And I think within a lot of, like, industries and educational settings and things, there are probably fields like that or things like that where like if they're presented to you in a way that is like relatively low stakes, which isn't to say that like it's low stakes in medical school, but like the fact that it's obligatory changes it as opposed to saying to your parents, okay, I'm going to spend the next 700 odd days trying cardiology, orthopedics, mm-hmm. pathology, like dent- fucking dentistry, like whatever. That would sound insane. So, you know, I just, I think that's something that a lot of people could benefit from. And I was so jealous when I found out that that's how medical school works. Because I was like, oh my God, that would be so sick. Like Mm. the amount, granted, yeah, you're drinking from a fire hose, but the amount of knowledge and the amount of different lifestyles Mm. that you would be able to take in while still doing what you're supposed to do. Mm -hmm. I think that's something a lot of people might really get a kick out of. I definitely would. I forget how the Vogue schools do it. I, I know that there is like an exploratory semester maybe yeah because i had a friend who went to one and yeah he described something similar to that i don't remember if it was a full semester but it was like yeah. you kind of did rotate yeah at least for like a week it might have been like a week or two maybe it was you only did, a week yeah yeah you tried everything for like a day i don't think a week is enough but yeah <laughs> yeah that would be really, really interesting but I, so like that kind of expanded out into the the workforce at at large and like all these different fields at large it would be nice if like that qualified you for something like that kind of got a credential out of the way that that exploratory period yeah like, okay now i am credentialed to specialize beyond that yeah it's hard to because i mean a lot of these ideas it's like they can get really utopian really fast and it's like it's hard when you want to like tie it back to like actual systems it's like well how could you actually implement some of these things or who would who would fund it or whatever and yeah. You would have to be able to still make some of the same difficult decisions that you know you're making now and some of the same like upheavals would happen throughout the course of a lifetime like career changes and pivots and whatever but yeah it just it does feel like the old way is really showing its age. Yeah. And like I will always come back like I mentioned earlier to the idea that making all of these decisions we've just been talking about or the delusional notion that you're supposed to be making all of these decisions that we've just talked about at like 18. Yeah. Or realistically before then, because you have to apply. So like 16, Mm -hmm. 17, like that is fucking nuts. I know maybe two people that I've ever met who are actually right 
<laughs> yeah. And like all power to them. Like they, mm-hmm. they figured it out. They were dead on. Like it's awesome and I'm happy for them. But yeah. like everybody else, I say people that marry their high school sweethearts, it's like, yeah, okay, you nail it. But that isn't how it usually goes. Nope. So when you take that expectation and then you add pressure and speed, a lot of people confuse the momentum that results from that or the inertia that results from that later in their 20s with like personal failure. Yeah, there's an expectation that you set for yourself. I think, first of all, you're just excited to be a fucking adult. Yeah. <laughs> and so like you have to justify that you're about to be one. Yeah. You know, by picking a thing and working toward that thing. So first of all, you're just like, oh, I, f- I want and I'm finally going to have the opportunity for independence. I'll have to make that real for myself. But before I make it real for myself, I have to proclaim it. Mm. It's like you're almost asked to, you know, sign your name to something, quite literally sign your name to something <laughs> and devote like a minimum of six months in pursuit of that thing. Mm. And then like after, a, you know, maybe I know some people who dropped out of college after a semester because they were just like, I don't think that's for me. Yep. You know, and maybe they learned that in a really harsh, disillusioning way. Yeah. But it's funny how, how we just, how we're asked to earn it. And also mistaking education for learning, too. That's the other component of it, I think. That, yeah. Like when you mentioned someone dropping out after a semester. Like right. That one irritates me more than a lot of things. Like when people feel, are made to feel stupid mm-hmm. or made to feel like they're not learners or something. Or you hear it a lot with like reading, like I'm really not a reader. Yeah. But I listen to audiobooks out the wazoo. It's like that kind of stuff. And I'm like, that's so fucked up. Yeah. That someone can be turned off to the idea of like learning things that interest them or getting better at things that are cool to them. Because well, we've conflated the idea of learning with education in that formal sense. I've I've been catching up with somebody that I went to college with recently and I asked her like who were who were your who were your favorite and least favorite professors from our department and um so we were talking about like different teaching styles and like I was saying that I only thrive in an intellectual playground mm. so I'm not the kind of person who can just be expected to be book smart and mm. study in exactly the way that other people study and listen to lectures in the same way that everyone else does I have a very specific learning style and I have a very specific way of, there's a very specific way in which capital E education or capital A academia does not serve me. There's a very specific way, or there are a lot of different ways I I think that I can learn without being in those environments. And it's often better for me to learn outside of those environments. But there were certain professors that I had in college where the way that they would help you to learn, we would be given these journals, right? Mm -hmm. And there were, usually four or five prompts on the journal. Number one was mandatory. It would always be answer number one and two more of your choice, right? So there yeah. were like f- four or five, six, seven prompts at the front of the journal. And whichever one spoke to you, that's what you would write about. And it was just yeah. it was just free write. Mm-hmm. Like, what does this prompt make you think of in relation to what you just read? That's how I learned to relate things to the human condition. Mm. What actions that these characters take relate to what you've seen in real life? Yeah. What emotions are present in the moral struggles in the narrative that you have felt? And how, how would you relate this text f- to your lived experience and your felt experience? It was things like that. So worded differently every time and, and more specific to the text. But that was how I learned to start talking about art as myth. 
Okay. Or as like a as a representative of human nature and not representative of like specifically like we were talking about with Maddie the, the other night, like specifically representative of authorial intent and mm-hmm. stuff like that. Like when you journal about the art that you're consuming, you start learning how to connect it to the human condition and not like a very specific set of circumstances that led to its birth. Yeah. Right. Anyway, where I was going with that was like, that's how I learn. Right. I learn yeah. best in an intellectual playground. I learn the worst being lectured to. I literally need to do something with my hands and eyes so that I can hear. I just cannot yeah. listen to a lecture unless they're really damn good at it. <laughs> and like so much of what we endure in academia and in preparing ourselves for the workplace is just sit still and be subservient. Yeah. And that's such a piss poor learning model for, I would argue most people because everyone has fucking ADD these days. So where is that getting you? You know, if you introduce new learning styles and popularize more, like fidget spinners are going to be a great thing moving forward, I think. Yeah. They're going to be like, I've never fidgeted necessarily, I guess maybe. But like I I developed the habit of drawing. I would recreate the art, artist portraits on the backs of my, all my penguin books. <clears throat> That's what I would do while I listened. And then that, that enabled me to listen, right? Yeah. For the same reason I listen to podcasts while I'm doing dishes and folding laundry. Like yeah. that's yeah. how I absorb it. If I'm doing something with my hands, then I can listen better because all those sensory voids are filled. So many kids are like that more and more so these days. So as we develop new ways of teaching and new learning styles that as we recognize more learning styles that we're able to develop new strategies for and, and enact those strategies in academia, we're going to have a much better, I, th- I think, a much better workforce that is better educated and more equipped to do what allows them to show up authentically, what allows them to be generative in their specific ways, because they will have been given just enough of that like individual attention yeah, or seen that their individual needs were given attention and, and recognized in just the right ways. that they're like, oh, I can show up as me. Mm-hmm. I don't have to show up as the drone that I'm trying to fit in as by, yeah. by like just pumping myself full of medi- medication and <laughs> doing whatever I need to do to learn how they expect me to learn and get the degree the way that everyone else does. Yeah. I think that is a model that is on its way out. And I don't know because yeah. again, I'm not, I'm no longer involved in academia, but that's kind of what I see as, as a necessity and what I think is probably being experimented with at the very least to give people a sense of, of empowerment and agency over how they learn, what they learn and how they bring that, knowledge and wisdom with them into the workplace in order to be authentically themselves. Yeah. That's like, that's the thing that, I mean, it kind of led me back to wanting to go to school. It was like the decision to do that was, I cannot overstate how simple and insignificant of a decision that was when I actually signed on the line. Mm -hmm. It was like, literally my mom just kind of dared me. (laughs) <laughs> it's like, I bet you can't get, like, she didn't say it this way, but the gist of the conversation was like, maybe you can get an associate's degree before the pandemic's over. Yeah. And that was when the pandemic was supposed to be over in like six months. Right. So I was like, yeah, okay, yeah. game on. Like, let's try to do this. Let's try to do it for like no money and we'll try to do it in an interesting way. 
And it, their stakes were so freaking low because all I was going to do was get this thing so my credits from when I was 18 didn't expire and then mm -hmm. go back on tour. And I was like, I don't care. I just don't want to lose those. But I ended up loving it because I realized, like, I've aged. So, you know, things have definitely changed on my end. But I realized the biggest thing was, like, I think I was, like, voluntarily clipping my wings mm -hmm. back in the day. Like, I was making myself learn and feel stupid in this way that... Like, I mean, I, I didn't feel like stupid in, in some ways. Like I, I liked school, but you know, I just felt like, I don't know why the hell everyone else is so excited about this. And mm -hmm. I'm just like, feel like a drone here. But this was the first time that I was able to like, because I was doing it pretty self-directed at first, at least I was able to like, just connect concepts all over the place. Like I could take a million classes. I could learn about a million things, read different books, like connect one class's books to the other class's essay. And like, my brother was taking courses at the same time, so it got to a point where I had read all of his textbooks and was citing those textbooks in my papers, and it was like this just exciting period of time. And I realized, like, oh, this is how I learn. Like, this is not something that was available to me when I was younger. And for all I know, it was not something that existed when I was younger. Mm -hmm. But now that it exists, I was like, I cannot believe that, like, in relation to the me that I was then, I cannot believe that I'm defending the idea of going to college. Yeah. Because it felt like a pyramid scheme to me then. I mean, it just felt ridiculous. <laughs> like, you just, like you buy in on this level, and b believe me, when you're 70 and dying of something, you'll you'll probably not regret this. Yeah. But, like, then I realized, like, no, it's sick. You just, you can learn a lot from people who know a lot about these things, and you can read all the time. And tests actually don't suck when you kind of like what you're studying for. Right. It, it's just, it, I don't know, it got really simple and it got really kind of not easy, but just really exciting and really like, like a big puzzle, you know? Mm. And that was something where I started to realize like some of these metrics that we have for intelligence and some of these systems that we have for learning and stuff like these are definitely not one size fits all. And I'm glad that these are, are changing. Because mm -hmm. it's like, I, I found like, you know, a lot of, my classmates were coming from really different backgrounds too. And it was just, it was really neat. Like everybody was just kind of showing up, you know, bringing their best and, and like trying to do this new thing. And yeah. like, this, this is what it all ought to be. Like this is what education and stuff ought to be. And like nobody should be made to feel like inadequate or stupid or whatever, because they don't fit that sort of orthodox way of, of doing it, that old school way of doing it. Yeah. Because that culminates in nothing just as surely as this does. And it can culminate in something just as surely as this does. So basically, it's like we've said so many times on this, like nobody knows what the fuck they're doing. <laughs> <laughs> and nothing really works. <laughs> We're all existentialists, whether we want to be or not. That's the truth. <laughs>